welcome to this episode of the Wellness Podcast. It's a packed episode for you. I think the runtime is about uh, an hour and 40 minutes-ish, so no complaints that it's not long enough because it should be. This is the first part. I say part, it's not really a part thing because there's loads of people, but this is going to be the first show from the CIC. We're going to bring you one more with a handful more guests. Today, I think you're going to have one, two, three, four, five. You're going to have five people talking about different topics, uh, completely different topics from each other. We're going to go over each one before each person. Some people get introduced, some people don't, and uh, you'll get a feel for it as well uh, as we talk about different things. It's a whole host of people who really, really know their stuff. These are global experts. I was at the the CIC conference a few months back now on a, a symposium for how we can promote hunting positively in the public domain. And this took place a day before the CIC conference opened uh, in Geneva. It was a fantastic debate and discussion all day, and it was great to meet a number of people involved in what is global conservation. Uh, amongst the people I met, what is a, a personal hero of mine, and you're going to be hearing from him today in Shane Mahoney. I, I didn't actually know he was going to be there, uh, but I bumped into him in, in the hallway afterwards and had a chance to speak to him for a little while, and an absolute gentleman of a man, and he, he has promised me that he will come on the podcast. I just need to contact him, and we'll get him on for a dedicated show, but this will give you a flavor a flavor of him and a number of other people. There's some fantastic discussion. He is around about the hour mark for people there you go. People wanting, uh, if you want to listen to him first, but I suggest you listen to the people beforehand. Now, we're going to run through each guest, like I said, uh, during the entire show, uh, but first of all, we've got a little treat for you. Uh, it is from Good Morning Britain, and it was... Well, it was this morning, actually. It was this morning, if... If well, people don't know what the time is now on the podcast. It's, it's Wednesday. Yeah, it's Wednesday. It was on Wednesday. Okay, so anyway, good morning, Britain. We have a previous guest of ours, Diggory Haydock, and he has gone head to head with Pierce Morgan again. And the topic is it's white rhino and trophy hunting again. Unfortunately, we've only got like the shortened version of the the show, so but you get a little flavour. You get a little flavour. Uh, l- luckily, this time Diggory managed to get a few more words in. But the bottom line is, and I think Diggory said it in the last show, is he has no intentions. Piers Morgan only wants to know what Piers Morgan has to say, and he doesn't actually care what you have to say, because you can hear it in the interview. It was. It started off. I only listened to it just just not that long ago, and it started off quite promising. I thought, oh, this is a got a slightly different tone than the last time he was on, but it, it very quickly escalated. went downhill. Yeah, he's not interested. What well, we're going to let you listen to that now, and then uh, you can join us again in a second. Joining us now is Diggory Haydock, a big game hunter, and in Berkshire, Kevin Peterson, the former England cricketer and conservationist. Welcome to both of you. Diggory, we've locked horns before, Indeed. for want of a better phrase, on this uh, show about trophy hunting. You support it. Remind viewers why you support trophy hunting. Well, I support some hunting. The only hunting I'm going to advocate is sustainable, proper, well-managed hunting of, um, l- of legitimate numbers which are strictly quoted so that the whole um, legitimacy of it 
is linked to the sustainability of populations. Mm. So uh, hunting outside of those contexts, I don't support. And presumably, in the case of the northern white rhino, you utterly condemn the poaching or hunting of a rhino. Poaching and hunting have nothing to do with one another. Would you support the hunting of a rhino? I don't think there's a sustainable um, way of hunting rhinos at the moment. Well, if you tried to hunt this one, that would be the Absolutely end of Absolutely right. But the reason that, um, that these rhinos are in, uh, facing extinction now is not because of legitimate hunting activities. This is because of illegal poaching. What sticks in my gullet about trophy hunting are these fat cats who come over loaded millionaires who, you know, basically terrorise these animals, pin them into corners, kill them and then cut their heads off and stick them on their office walls. That, to me, is utterly obscene. Again, a terribly tabloid pejorative view of something no, what which they you do. clearly know nothing it's what they, about. It's, it's what not, they do. It's not what they it's do. What Last time I came, do. No, it's not. You've never been on a trophy hunt. You've never been in a hunting camp. I've seen the you pictures. You frankly don't know what you're talking about. I've seen about. the pictures. Looking at pictures, let me show you... OK, you show, show a picture of a dead lion and say, lions are in danger, dead lion, good or bad, someone shot it. It's bad. Now, let me, let me give show you... Let me one, give me one defence for why you should I'm ever about put to. A, a, an animal's head on your office wall. Let me go back to what's in, what the first question... Give me you, one defence for Let it. me go back to the first question you asked before you give me another question. Now, the first question you asked was about the, the money that goes into hunting from sport hunting mm. or trophy hunting. The Booby Valley Conservancy in Botswana... Uh, sorry, sorry, in Zimbabwe. It was a cattle station. There were eight lions on it. It's a, over a million acres. Now... Uh, because of concerted efforts by people to fence that off, to take out the cattle, which are very destructive to the, to the, to the environment, they've allowed the lions to proliferate to the point where there are 500 lions. Now, you show a picture of one lion and say, this lion will live its natural life. When it becomes old, it will be hunted, it will be shot. That will put $100,000 right, into this area. Right. Let me finish. Into you. this area. Now, you, you minimise the effect of hunting. No, no, I know totally this is a massive thing okay. in an area where otherwise the lions are unsustainable. You take away the trophy hunting, you lose those 500 lions, which is built up from a population of 17, and you go back to cattle ranching, we go to all Kevin, the wildlife suffers. Right, but do you defend the right of these people who trophy hunt to then, if they want to, pose with pictures of people with, with animals with their heads severed, if they want to, take them home to America and put them on their office wall, as we have seen happen? Do you defend that? What business is it of yours, what somebody does with something that they've legally okay. achieved? Well, you can make what you want uh, from that. I think Diggory, for the second time, has done a, a pretty damn good job of... of uh, and, you know, it, it does. It takes some kahunas to go on, on national TV on a subject like that. And Especially face-to-face face with, face face with Pierce Morgan. And th the thing is, is you your audience is... It's probably against you before you start. Yeah, the the audience is. I mean, seven thirty in the morning, and uh, yeah, it's not the greatest of audience. But I think Diggory, he he does a good job. Uh, he he was fantastic when he came on the show with Brilliant. us. And if you haven't heard that podcast with him, go and check it out because it's a great podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed doing it. And we, although we hadn't at that point met him face to face, we got to meet him maybe six months later when we were in in Iwa. Yeah, uh, and I had a chance to speak to him briefly. Uh, I was going to say, and maybe we can bring him on again for some more uh, hate mail uh, after this show. He will undoubtedly get it. He got, he got so much hate mail after the last time he was on Good Morning Britain. I'm amazed that he, he could be bothered <laughs> with getting it all again, but he did. So good on you. Yep. Uh, right, moving on to the show. Byron's got a few things on a piece of paper here. So Yes, we have, uh, well, first of all, prizes. We told you two weeks ago that you would have the chance to win a, uh, a Caldwell 
shooting rest. It's an adjustable shooting rest, normally intended to be used as part of a bench rest system for super accurate testing of hand loads would be probably what, what I would say it would be most useful for. Adjustable at the front and adjustable at the back. We've got pictures up on, uh, on Facebook and across social media. It's a seriously great piece of kit if you enjoy spending a bit of time on the range making your loads as accurate as possible because it removes you from the equation. Uh, it's very, very heavy, which is why we stipulated for this particular prize that you would have to be at the Schoon Palace Game Fair, the GWCT Game Fair at Schoon Palace this weekend, uh, which is the first weekend of July, to be able to pick it up. And or, or as uh, Paul Wilkie did ask us, uh, if uh, since he's working in Thailand, can we keep it? He lives locally to us. So if he wins it, yeah. yeah. So if you uh, if you win it, so if you do live locally to us, we can hold it for you. Which is the Angus area. Mm-hmm. You have to come. We're not coming to you. We'll hold it for you. Yes, no, I think that that's fair enough. So because it's such a great prize, we decided we'd run it over two podcasts. And now this is going out on Thursday. Uh, this is going out on Thursday, and the game fair starts the day after on the Friday. Uh, we still are not going to announce the winner, and what we're going to do is we're going to announce the winner who is going to be selected completely at random from the list of people who have entered. We'll, we'll get someone else to select it oh, at, the we'll at the yeah. game fair. Uh, but we'll do it live if, if we can. I think there's 3G there yep. uh, on social media, and we'll because it's live at the time. We're going to do it on Friday morning, straight after we finish recording a podcast first thing in the morning, and we will we'll tag the person so that you can find it just in case you're only there on the Friday. <laughs> yep. And uh, what else you got on the list? Um, don't forget, we have another prize uh, running, which is to win a set of tickets for the Game Fair. Now, yet again, this is slightly confusing because I'm mentioning it straight after the Game Fair, which is this weekend. Completely different one. Different one. This is the the Game Fair. It's called the Game Fair at Hatfield House, which is the 28th to the 30th of July, which is way down in England from where we're sitting up in Scotland right now. Uh, it's to win a pair of tickets. And for that, it's, again, social media. Go and check out our Facebook page. Go and check out our Instagram. Loads of people have shared it. Yeah. it's uh, Just just read the instructions, uh, share it and like it or whatever it says there, and we will pick, again, uh, people uh, a person at random to win two tickets. It's quite a confusing name. The Game Fair. The Game Fair. It's smart in two ways. Well, it's smart in one way is that when you type in Google... I want to go to a game fair. It's probably going to be the first up, one yeah. that comes up. But if you're talking about it in conversation, people actually have no idea what you're talking about because yeah. you're like, oh, I'm going especially to the, on a radio show. Oh, I'm going to the game fair this weekend. Yeah. All right, which one? No, the game, the game fair. fair this weekend. So that is what we're referring to. Uh, we will be recording two new podcasts this weekend at the GWCT game fair at Scoon Palace. Uh, one is on the Friday morning, um, which is uh, a panel debate. And the second one is going to be with the Atlantic Salmon Trust. And we're going to be talking about uh, the plight of Atlantic salmon in our country. Yep. Another good fish podcast. Yeah, we, we haven't done one, one for a while. while. Yeah. And uh, we actually, I think we had a few people asking to do another fishing related one. We actually need to do another deer management one, I think, at some point, because it's become very popular and we get a lot of comments and people asking about that. And it's uh, particularly pertinent right now, especially in Scotland. Uh, with the government discussions on deer management. Uh, we did touch on it just very slightly at the Northern Shooting Show, but it'd be good to do a dedicated Yeah, we need to do a more in-depth on one, I think. The last thing I have here is just to let everybody know, uh, finally, what our total uh, the total amount was that we raised uh, for the Lawiru Sanctuary 
uh, which was the uh, money that we were trying to raise for the chimpanzee sanctuary in the Congo, which was brought to light by the interview that we did with the second interview we did with Ivan Carter. And the total amount that we raised was £774. Yep. We were trying to raise, uh, the target was 660 if I remember correctly, yeah, was, yeah. which was to house and feed a chimpanzee for the year. So we've exceeded that. And once again, thank you very, very, very much to everybody who donated uh, online or gave us money at the, the game fairs. Uh, well, there's loads of you, loads of you giving from £3 all the way up to, yeah. I think... Some quite sizable donations. Some very sizable donations. So, yeah, no, we can't say thank you enough. We're going to send that money this week uh, and we will post the sort of receipt of it or whatever we get once we send it on our social media. Yep, I'll... Uh We'll post it from our holiday in Hawaii that's uh, paid for by the donations. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> uh, I don't even think that would buy the flight. No, I don't think it would buy the flight. Which is the sad thing. I mean, that was the point that Ivan was making in his interview was that think about the luxuries that we enjoy and it's a relatively small amount of money. Yeah. Um, but thank you very much. We will be sending that money this week. And, we and will you will make week. one happy chimpanzee. We're definitely going to ask to get a picture. Uh, uh, we'll try and get some, some stuff from the wire. And, yeah. uh, We'll even ask if we can name something. Yeah. Maybe a chimpanzee. Maybe, maybe a monkey. Not. Maybe something else in the dedicated to our listeners. Well, enjoy the show and we will introduce people as they come. This podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. We are going to be on their stand Friday and Saturday at the Game Fair at Schoon Palace. Come and say hello to us. Come and have a chat with them and find out what they're all about. If you don't know already, we have had uh, the director of SACS and uh, the head of policy um, from SACS on the podcast in the last six months. Um, but if you want to know more, we're going to be on their stand so we can help do a bit of introduction and you can go and speak to them as well. And now you're about to hear an extract from the opening statements just prior to the opening of the CIC conference. It's basically talking about EU voting, trophy hunting, uh, Peter, born free and hunting in Africa. So enjoy the first little bit. The other way says, and I could quote Peter here, they say, hunting destroys wildlife. And when you look into petitions in the European Parliament, where the hunting, the enemies of hunting, and I saw with interest that Mrs. Catherine Bearder, uh, or Birder, Bearder, she's pronounced, uh, the uh, member uh, of the European Parliament, who was behind the last motion in the European Parliament uh, to introduce, to get a vote on banning trophies. She said clearly hunting is one of the reasons why this wildlife disappears in Africa. And this is a blatant lie for which she does not have any proof. And this was fell through with 80 plus percent, 80 plus percent of the parliamentarians in the parliament did not support that motion. It fell through. Three months later, um, I took that with me. There is a, the House, 
the Parliament in UK has a scientific service. And that scientific service looked into, they wrote a paper for Parliament, scientists, two scientists, trophy hunting UK and international policy. This is a briefing paper for the parliamentarians in the UK. And apart from very many just blatant, well, what should I say, uh, lies, fake news, in there, um, it said um, that um, just recently a motion in the, in the European Parliament was accepted. That is how the, the whole paper, the briefing paper for the parliamentarian starts. It says a motion to ban hunting in Africa was just accepted in the European Parliament. The opposite was true. So another three weeks later, the European Parliament decided on a major strategy for anti-poaching. All of us Every conservationist, every hunter is happy if an important topic like poaching comes to the attention of the European Parliament and they agree on a strategy against poaching in Africa. But then you find a little chapter which, here again we have our friend Bearder, who happens to be the lady um, who chairs or is the sub-chair in, 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 um, in the environment committee in parliament and she was responsible, she was the, the, the spokesperson for introducing this paper. And she got into the strategy against poaching in Africa once again a little sentence which says that, amongst others, the main reason for wildlife disappearing in Africa is hunting. So when the one thing falls through, it is just two weeks later that the next thing comes through, and it also shows that those people who live from that, they live from campaigns which do not conserve wildlife, which lead to the opposite, but they make millions which never appear anywhere in Africa. If you, I can follow on that. Some of um, an, an organization born free, when you say uh, where is the journalism which looks what is really happening uh, with these things, where is the money going? Well, the money is going, for example, to bribe delegates at international meetings. And Born Free, for example, had to apologize in the CITES uh, uh, General Assembly meeting for the effort to bribe the delegates of a particular country. So where is the journalism which really dives into these issues? And the facts, I can assure you, we, you know, it was said, you said, um, uh, it's the 11th hour. I mean, some of the others, more or less, what you said, uh, it's more than the 11th hour, it's, it's five minutes to 12. What is the reality we are facing right now in Africa? 
I was, uh, three weeks ago I was in Tanzania and I was asked um, to assist a newly created, um, it's not a private organization, but it is governed uh, uh, along private lines. Um, the Tanzania government so far administers, you have national parks and then you have large areas which are used for hunting. So hunting is there, the main, the main land use, and um, they are uh, reserves, they are protected areas, but you are allowed to hunt there. I mean, these areas are not suited for national parks. Altogether, Tanzania has more than a third of its land under, under one form or the other of protection. So hunting is the main way how to generate revenue on, on this land. But as a result of these boycotts, after Cecil, the US made the import of lion trophies from Africa illegal into the USA. France came in. France made the import of lion trophies illegal, although according to EU regulations, it is not legal to make them illegal because they do not have the right anymore to do that. That would have to be done in Britain. Uh, in, 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 in Belgium, yeah? in, in the EU, in Brussels. So nevertheless, it's done. Holland has done the same. So now the Swiss are asked to do the same. As a result, Tanzania had 180 lions shot a few years ago. Last year, it was 18. The demand is not there. So the Tanzania Wildlife Authority, which is a semi-private body to administer these huge junks of land with the money which comes from hunting. I left Tanzania 10 years ago. And between when I left 2005 and now, the income from hunting, although the prices went up, the income from hunting went down by 50%. So this private organization um, is it must um, finance itself, mainly from 10% comes from photographic tourism, 90% comes from hunting. Now, with 50% of that income gone, these areas cannot be protected anymore. And it happens exactly what you said, wildlife will disappear there. I have had areas where Hunting, the, the, the concessions went back to the government because um, there was no demand and the hunting company said we have to give it back because we are not going to sell the hunts. Now, after five years, the, some of these areas were just like the Serengeti. You know, we called them little Serengeti. I know I, that is some areas which I, I, knew, I know very, very well because I spend a lot of time there in my time. You fly over that area. I flew several days, I flew over this, uh, these areas where I worked. You don't see wildlife, but what you see is 10,000s of cattle. So there's no hunting anymore. Wonderful, but there is the cattle. The wildlife is gone. One of the first speeches at the opening of the conference came from Marco Lambertini, the head of the WWF. It's uh, actually a very interesting uh, segment, this. Uh, it covers climate change, poaching, human population, pollution, and what's very encouraging is it touches heavily on points that people should be working together with, mm -hmm. uh, hunting organizations and organizations like the WWF. There's so many crossover points that 
they can all be worked on. And uh, I finding think, the common ground. Yep. And uh, I think he says it a lot better than I can. So yeah, he's a very listen. eloquent man. Yeah, no, he's very, very good. So enjoy. Thank you. Please let me introduce yourself to Mr. Marco Lambertini. Mr. Marco Lambertini, an Italian native, has been the Director General of the WWF International since 2014. He has been a global conservation leader for 25 years, who began his time with the WWF as a youth volunteer. Prior to being the WWF Director General, Mr. Lambertini was the Chief Executive of BirdLife International, as well as the Global Director of Network and Program for over a decade. Let's give Mr. Lambertini a round of applause to welcome him to the stage for his keynote address. Mr. Lambertini, the floor is yours. Monsieur Dan, bonjour, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, first of all, my warmest thank you for the invitation uh, to be able to address you at your opening day. I'm humbled and, uh, and very happy. Um, I, I'm not a hunter, and uh, I hope you don't mind. I also personally don't particularly share the philosophy behind the recreational hunting. But this is not the first time I actually engage with the hunting community. Um, when I was, um, I think was 22, and I was leading a national organization in my country, Italy, for the protection of birds, that became the BirdLife International partner for Italy, I was invited to open a similar assembly uh, for the biggest hunting organization in the country. At the time, it was a difficult situation. We had too many hunters in Italy, it was very unregulated, it was really basically very unsustainable. But I felt uh, that despite the differences, the dialogue with the hunting community at the time in Italy and now um, uh, here with you today continues to be an absolutely critical dimension of building a common effort to address some of the big issues that unfortunately the natural world is facing. So I'm delighted to be here uh, and being able to speak to you. This is not a participation for endorsement, this is a participation for a dialogue. Um, I've been asked to set the scene and, and present you with some thoughts and reflections about some of the issues that we're facing and perhaps together we can also address. We are living in a very special moment of the uh, history of the planet and the history of our civilization. For the first time, one species is able to alter, to impact the very natural systems that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years and are at the foundation of supporting life on Earth, including us. The Jurassic was the era named after the dinosaurs. Scientists are beginning to tell us that there are all the elements for considering the age we are living in today to be called the age of humans, the Anthropocene. The age where we are overwhelming uh, natural and wild, uh, wild systems and uh, we are beginning to understand uh, the consequences as well. In fact, I think uh, there are two sides of the uh, ecological crisis of today which are equally super important. The first one is what we're doing to the climate. It's very dangerous and I think uh, we are beginning to really understand that. The second one is actually the loss of nature 
which perhaps is an issue which is less hitting the headlines, but it is equally dangerous and equally important. And of course, the two are very strongly connected. The good news in all this is that today we know. We cannot hide behind the lack of knowledge of information, as perhaps we could have done a couple of decades ago. We know exactly that in the last 60 years, and this is a blink of an eye compared to the life history, uh, uh, the, the history of life on Earth, in the last 60 years, from the 1950s, the acceleration uh, of consumption of natural resources, anything you can think of, water, energy, timber, fish, fertilizers, pesticides, everything has grown exponentially like never before. And we know that this trend is not sustainable. We know that by developing our industrial system based on fossil fuel, we've been warming up the planet. And these are the average temperature uh, from 1850 to today. And you can see the global warming growing and, in fact, accelerating in the last few years. We know that we are warming up the planet. And we know that what we are doing to the wild, wild habitats, converting into agriculture, for example, or other industrial activities, and what we do to the wildlife and what we do to the climate is actually beginning to show some serious impact. This is our, our um, uh, Living Planet Index. We are monitoring around 3,000 populations of wildlife, vertebrate wildlife around the world, all continents. And this is the decline we've been seeing in the last 40 years. In 40 years, not even a generation, we have lost half of the vertebrate populations in the world. And there was a extraordinary calculation uh, published on a scientific journal just a few weeks ago that calculates that the, the weight the mass, the weight of all the people, all the cattle, all the chickens, all the rabbits, all the dogs and the cats, all the domesticated animals and the humans today on the planet is perhaps between 5 to 20 times more than all the rest of the wildlife on the planet. This is just to give you an example of the deep impact that we are beginning to have. And we're also beginning to feel it. We just, just don't know it uh, uh, theoretically. We're beginning to feel it. We're beginning to feel it because the last five years has been the hottest on record, and because you're beginning to feel the extreme weather the climate change is producing. We're going to be even beginning to see it, and the coral reef bleaching, the tragedy of the coral reef bleaching of the last few years is an example, is a visible face of climate change and is destroying one of the most rich wildlife, marine wildlife habitats, and also so important for food security, for fisheries, for so many populations and communities depending directly on these resources. And the plastic, the pollution in general, is the other visible face of what we are doing to the planet. It's unsustainable, it's stupid, it is arrogant, and we are beginning to see it. And also we're beginning to understand that actually protecting the natural environment is not just something nice for the wildlife that I guess we all love. It's not just something important for pandas or tigers or uh, 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 game wildlife. 
is actually something fundamental for us as a society and for us as an economy. The value of nature, the, the services that nature provides to us every day for free, from clean air to fresh water to food, fibers, pollination, and so many other benefits, is taken for granted. And uh, yet, is the foundation of everything else. We've been able to develop the way we have as a human society because the climate has been stable in the last 10,000 years and because nature has been productive. Change those two dimensions, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. So if the state of the planet is going down, if the pressures are going up, it's also true, however, that the response is beginning to grow. We had uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, result uh, for the first time since the start of the Industrial Revolution, the emissions of CO2 for energy production has peaked, stabilized, in the last three years. And the Environmental Agency, uh, in, in International Energy Agency has confirmed uh, just a week ago that 2016 also the CO2 emissions peaked, did not grow. This is fantastic. We are beginning actually to reduce the impact on the planet. Long way to go, we are not there yet, but this is very promising. And then we have the Paris Agreement on Climate. We have China that has started to lead the world in terms of renewable energy, uh, responding to the problems of pollution and climate change that they are suffering from. So on the climate, on one of the side of the coin of the ecological crisis I showed you before, on the climate change issue, I think we are really moving fast. And it's very encouraging. We need to continue to push very hard and accelerate but it's very encouraging. However, the threats are several uh, uh, on, the, on, on the planet. Climate change is one, but there are many others. And species over-exploitation continues to be a big issue. It is a big issue at sea, because we are fishing fish stocks much faster than they can reproduce. And 90% of the fisheries today in the world, marine fisheries, are either over-exploited or fully exploited. Only 10% are sustainably managed. And then, of course, there is uh, the uh, use of wildlife uh, on land, which in many cases continue to be an issue. And I'm going to concentrate on, on that now. One, of course, is something that perhaps is less close to your uh, area, uh, but it's still very important, which is subsistence hunting. Subsistence hunting is a fundamental right for so many communities that live uh, in many continents close to nature, in nature, uh, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia in particular. Um, but the growth in population and the utilization of unsustainable, non-selective hunting tools is beginning to actually have an impact on the ecosystems where even these local communities live. And there are many studies showing how the collapse of wildlife population in many of these forests are actually beginning to have an impact on the communities themselves. Then there is the poaching crisis. Uh, this is an issue that uh, I recognize you as a community, you as CIC, has been speaking out very loudly and very clearly against. And I think this is an area where definitely we welcome your continued effort to uh, condemn and to fight with your presence on the ground and with your political influence, uh, anything that it is considered poaching. Poaching 
uh, of uh, big mammals for big commodities like ivory or rhinos for their horns or other wildlife unsustainably traded. And this, this picture is interesting for me because it shows the two tragedies, the two dimensions of the same tragedy. It is a tragedy for the elephant population, a major decline in Africa mainly driven by poaching, but it's also a tragedy for the local communities. These young African kids have been manipulated, paid peanuts to go out and kill elephants and sell the elephants to the traders are the other side, the human side, the tragedy of poaching. And so I think together there is a lot we can continue to do to fight this horrible phenomenon, which is actually not helping wildlife and not helping people either. But poaching is also closer to us, um, uh, um, not just in remote areas, uh, in, in also in developed countries uh, is, is still uh, a very, um, very present. And uh, being Italian, I've been uh, on my age, I lived the years in Italy where poaching was really terrible. Um, songbirds are killing and all the rest. We've made a lot of progress in many countries and it is thanks to the coalition of conservationists like WWF and hunting organizations like many of your representatives that are really gathered together in fighting uh, uh, illegal hunting in the terms of poaching. So the bottom line, whether it is um, uh, hunting for subsistence or hunting for recreation, is to really look at science and understand the trends of the population that we all, for different reasons, perhaps, but we all care about, and, and adopt those indications from science to really be able to uh, uh, um, adjust our practices and our policies in our legislation. For example, nobody today would think to open the hunting for tigers. We have only just more than over 3,000 tigers left in the world, in the whole of Asia, and, uh, and there is no question that uh, uh, hunting for tigers is, is, is something that we shouldn't uh, resume. But there are other interesting situations um, uh, where, um, where, for example, some population of species which are huntable today are also declining very fast. And so how can you actually together prevent that the lions in Africa of today end up being the lions of Asia, where only 500 remain. The trend is clear. Lions are declining very fast. And not just lions, but other populations like giraffes, iconic species of continents like Africa. How can we come together around a common effort to avoid the collapse of these populations uh, that we are seeing uh, going down that direction? Similarly, for other species. That's an area where I think we could really work together. Then there is the other big question, and this is controversial, I know, but it's a fundamental question. We are growing as a human population. In the conference, uh, people raised the, the, the number of 10 billion. We will be most likely 10 billion in 20, 30 years. Will there be space in a world with 10 billion people for special animals like the predators? Lions, tigers, the conflict that there are, it, it is arising in Africa and in Asia, but also in Europe, where we exterminated the predators, and now they're coming back, and there is, this, again, a lot of anxiety about how to find a way to coexist. I really would love the day in which we can uh, look at predators as a major component of the ecosystem, but also, I would say, maybe provocatively, and we can com continue the conversation over the break, um, for you as hunters, to look at predators not as competitors, but as fellow hunters, because this is what they are. 
And, and, and actually, they are not just fellow hunters to you, but actually they are also extremely helpful in managing, of course, as you know, the health of the prey populations. This is something that we have not learned yet, how to coexist with predators, and I think it's a big challenge, but a big opportunity for all of us to, to find a way. And I'm not just saying strictly uh, total protection, I'm just saying learn how to coexist with a viable, vibrant uh, predator population. And then the issue of protected areas. And protected areas are many things. They are protected, protected areas, no-go areas, no-hunting areas, but they're also areas where we can actually uh, clearly think of sustainable uh, use of natural resources, wildlife, as many other resources. And, and, and at the press conference, a uh, uh, representative of Peace Park was mentioning how in some areas uh, hunting is a major contributor to wildlife protection, and, and we do acknowledge as WBF their role we need to make sure, however, that wildlife use in uh, uh, wildlands are actually well monitored. And we can actually demonstrate the positive impact of hunting for communities and for wildlife. That's something that is not always very clear. And I would invite you as an organization to really push very hard for stringent measures to demonstrate the benefit of uh, sustainable use of wildlife uh, and, and, and therefore uh, avoid critics with facts and with figures and with science. I think that's the best strategy we can develop. And of course, habitat restoration. And I, I put this slide because I have to say, uh, um, the hunting community, particularly in terms of waterfall management uh, around the world, have actually played an important role in not just uh, managing sustainably the quotas, but also uh, restoring habitats generating an increase sometimes, even in wildfowl population. The North American, the Western Hemisphere uh, example is probably the most uh, um, important one. And so I'm concluding with also another provo provocative question because we are now discussing a lot about how can we maintain nature at the state, at least, that we find today on the planet? How can you avoid the wave of extinction? How can you avoid the decline of populations that I showed before with the Living Planet Index? Uh, and, uh, and if you look at the IUCN red list, is uh, saying the same story. How much nature do we need to protect? For climate, we know. We have this two degrees limit. The science is clear. He's telling us, do not pass the two degrees because the weather system will go crazy and you will pay the price for it. But on nature, we don't know. We are protecting uh, something like 15% uh, of the land surface and not even 5% of the ocean. Is that enough? Is that enough nature to actually sustain the global ecosystem? Some scientists are telling us, are beginning to tell us, no, it's not. 15% is far from what needs to be conserved in the natural state. And actually, it's more likely that the amount of natural places that we need to protect is close to half of the land and half of the ocean. This is a big challenge, but it's a challenge that science is beginning to give to us. And it's saying, if you lose too much nature, the whole system will collapse. Species, natural places, in, in, in enough diversity and quantity of nature is critical to maintain the whole global ecosystem. So the challenge, and I am pleased to see the word harmony in your title, uh, because this is actually WBF mission. It's about a future in harmony between people and nature. And the harmony between the people and nature is the challenge. 
is the existential challenge, not just for wildlife, but for us as well. And, uh, and it's interesting on how on climate change we're making so much progress. This is an advert that could be a WBF advert about the, the impact of, of beef and, and, and cattle on the climate. Uh, in fact, is an asset management company making this asset because they're beginning to get worried about the impact of climate change on the economy, on the investment of their clients. But then you find another article, uh, which um, is absolutely true, talking about how people are not sensitized. They're not considering the loss of nature as a really important issue. People are sad about the loss of nature. People don't like to think a species is going extinct. I, I, can't, I can't imagine nobody is. But we still don't understand at a mass public level and a political level, perhaps even at a business level, yet we don't understand that loss of nature is not just a sad thing. It's actually a very dangerous thing for us. We need to bring nature loss at the same level of recognition as climate change. These are the two challenges of our civilization. These are the two things we need to fix and maintain for our own future. Uh, and it's about the beauty of nature, but it's also about the value of nature. That's what we need to understand. And it's about what nature gives us in terms of pleasure, but also in terms of benefits. Um, and understanding the purpose of nature is the topic of the following uh, panel. Uh, and the alienation from understanding uh, and nature properly. And so uh, with this uh, uh, slide that basically shows our challenge, we need to bend the growing curve of CO2 emissions and greenhouse gases emissions, and we're beginning to do that. And we need to bend upward the curve of biodiversity loss because it's equally important and dangerous. I would like to finally close um, with our new uh, campaign which is about working together in finding common solutions, because uh, in WF uh, we strongly believe in collaboration. This is exactly why I'm here today, and uh, we believe too that uh, the only way we can address these serious, important issues we all, in different ways, care for is by uh, being together. Thank you. And I'm very happy to announce our next speaker, which you might know already from previous CSC general assemblies or other events, it's Andras Demeter. He's a biologist, and in his research, he was working a lot with wildlife ecology. Currently, he's uh, in the European Commission. He's senior expert in biodiversity unit, and he's uh, in charge of contracting and also implementing the international biodiversity conventions. And his talk will be on the challenges of wildlife management in urbanized Europe from biodiversity conservation perspective. Anders, please. Thank you, Klaus, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, dear friends, whom I know for many years now. And thanks uh, to the CIC for the invitation to speak about a topic for which I would have to add a few qualifiers. Um, First of all, uh, uh, this presentation is going to be a, a kind of appetizer because I would like to give a, a kind of flash of uh, what is now uh, in focus in, in biodiversity policy and what is in focus on, on the EU urban agenda as well. And uh, there, is a, there is a cross-link between the two, which I hope to uh, explain to you quickly and to make you interested in it. 
And then uh, I will have to be quite brief about it because I would like to share with you some very fresh material from, uh, from something that was uh, adopted yesterday in the European Commission. Uh, so it's very fresh news and hopefully it will interest you. And uh, the qualifier about the title of my presentation, which was in the invitation, was uh, about the term wildlife management. Because actually, in the European Union legislation, uh, you will hardly find the word wildlife. You will find terms like, uh, like wild fauna and flora. Uh, and even uh, there may be legislation which is colloquially known as, for instance, the wildlife trade regulations, which are the EU implementation of the, of the CITES uh, convention. But again, the legal text doesn't have the word wildlife. Um, nevertheless, uh, uh, when the European Union is a contracting party to the Bern Convention, whose title does have wildlife, there is absolute uh, close link. And of course, the term management comes up in many of the uh, pieces of legislation. So first, let me give you a very brief uh, introduction about uh, how the state of nature is in the EU. It's of course extremely difficult to describe in a few words uh, how the species and uh, habitats are doing in the EU, at least for those that uh, receive some uh, form of protection from EU legislation, there is a periodical uh, appraisal of the state, and the last one published in 2015 uh, gives us a picture which is uh, not entirely reassuring, because among the birds we only have something like um, over half are doing okay, but uh, about 70% of them are definitely not doing well. For the other species of animals, uh, like mammals and, uh, um, and, and uh, not only animals but plants, the trend is, uh, is uh, nearly not as good, only a quarter of them are doing well. And uh, for the habitats, the situation is, uh, is, is not much better. So there is cause for concern about how nature in the EU is doing, in spite of the fact that there are some spectacular recoveries of species. And we have already heard about some of them today. And since I used, I used to work on mammals, let me be biased and I'll show you a couple of pictures of mammals. Um, because uh, due to legal protection and also changes in society's attitude and land use change, has resulted in things happening like, uh, oops, what is this wolf doing down the street of a Dutch village? Um, one or two of them were suspected to be actually escapees, but uh, for sure now the wolf has reached across Germany and it's on the doorstep of the Netherlands and, and Belgium as well. And uh, um, I'm not only proud of my, my Hungarian wildlife heritage, I'm also proud of the quality of the Hungarian wildlife photographers. So this is an award-winning photography of a beaver in the city of Budapest. The beavers are also on a very rapid increase in much, uh, much of Europe. Um, and there's a lot of publications about this, how the wolf <coughs> has been uh, re colonizing much of uh, Western Europe, and, and how the beaver has also expanded from very low numbers 
uh, earlier in the 20th century. So we have phenomena like this. Um, so this was just really a, a flash on, on, the, on the nature in the EU. Um, now let me move towards uh, other agendas. Um, spatial aspects of uh, EU policies have always been important, and uh, for uh, the support of regional policy, a lot of studies have been carried out. So a lot of studies have been done on urban aspects uh, of, uh, of the European Union, including uh, urban sprawl. This is an example of a study which uh, involved cooperation of Switzerland as well, so I thought it would be interesting for this meeting. And there's also a very good uh, website where you can produce all kinds of interactive maps about many indicators of, uh, of uh, urban policy in Europe, which might be interesting for you. And what is interesting is that we have uh, now an urban agenda for the EU, which is not one of those classic policy tools of the European Union. It's not, uh, not a legal text in the form of a directive or a regulation. It was first adopted by ministers responsible for regional development, and then it was adopted by the General Council of the European Union. So basically, it's a new way to bring forward actors in the, in the field of urban policy. And uh, what is important is that um, since so many of the people in the EU live in or around urban areas, up to, up to 70%, and so much of the, of the economy of the EU is around urban areas, there is a need to, to coordinate action and to improve the efficiency. So uh, under the Dutch presidency last year, uh, the so-called Pact of Amsterdam was, was adopted, which sets this, this agenda. And again, apologies for only flashing up this agenda, but uh, later on you will see why I do this, because there will be hopefully a further link between the nature and uh, urban agendas of the EU. And now let me turn <clears throat> to how the, the, the policy response uh, from the conservation side works. And uh, the EU has a biodiversity strategy very much in line with the global strategy of the Convention of the Biologi on Biological Diversity. And there are six targets in this uh, strategy. And the first one is uh, to fully implement the EU nature directives. These are the birds and the habitats directives that many of you in Europe uh, know quite well because some of the provisions of these directives uh, have a strong impact of uh, what can be hunted and how it can be hunted in the EU. <clears throat> Another pillar of the directive which sometimes may affect your activities in hunting, is the second pillar of the legislation on site protection. This is the Natura 2000 network of, uh, of the ecological network of the EU, which now has uh, over 27,000 uh, components uh, covering uh, a million square kilometers. So it's, a very, it's in fact the biggest territorial entity in the EU. I won't speak about it anymore today, but I would like to move on to target two of the strategy, which talks about maintaining and restoring ecosystems. And one of the actions under this target is to map and assess ecosystems and their services in the EU. And uh, another action is to develop a green infrastructure uh, strategy. 
And here again, uh, there will be links of interest. Because under the mapping of ecosystem, uh, mapping and assessment of ecosystem services, in short, MASS, which also happens to be a brand of beer in Belgium, and that may be a cause of confusion sometimes. This uh, project has uh, produced a series of uh, reports, uh, beginning from a conceptual framework through indicators, and the report on urban ecosystems has been produced quite recently. And the, the main conclusions from this urban ecosystem uh, first assessment was that um, it is possible to, uh, to find the links between various levels of government uh, on ecosystem services. Uh, and the first set of uh, indicators has been produced on, on how to do that. Uh, but this was very much at the conceptual level. So to follow from the from the, this uh, so-called urban pilot project. Uh, there is a new project which is just starting, and actually it was uh, initiated uh, uh, by the European Parliament that the Commission should uh, uh, fund the project. Uh, it's got a fancy title called En Route, which means enhancing resilience of urban ecosystems through green infrastructure. And um, uh, what, what this project is going to do is to, to reach out to a, a broader uh, spectrum of, uh, of uh, cities and also urban areas to test the conceptual framework set out in the urban mass study. Uh, here I will stop talking about urban, but I will return to it in, in a few moments because I would like to speak to you a few words about target five of the biodiversity strategy which is uh, uh, combating the impact of invasive alien species. Because here, again, you might have uh, uh, points of interest. Uh, I don't, cannot speak for long about it, but uh, at the, towards the end of the 2000, uh, 2014, a regulation was adopted by the European Parliament, uh, which, based on the logic of uh, setting up a list of invasive alien species of, of EU concern, moves on to determining uh, the main kinds of intervention, which is prevention, early warning and rapid response, and management, which will be in the hands of the member states. And uh, last year in July, the first list uh, of the invasive alien species of EU concern were adopted, and here's just an extract of the bird and mammal species, uh, some of which you may be familiar with and for some of which uh, hunting could be part of the solution uh, either for prevention or for management. Again, this is just a, a very short flash of this topic. And now I'd like to come to the part of the presentation which will lead to the, to the fresh news. And that's about an exercise that went on for two years and it was an immense, gigantic exercise that involved many, many actors which was uh, the fitness check of the EU nature legislation. Um, there was a, a public consultation which generated the most ever response from citizens in the EU. Over half a million responses were received to this public consultation, and there were many, many meetings and, and many studies produced. 
And the conclusions of the fitness check were agreed in December and published by the European Commission, saying that the directives have been found fit for the purpose, but they need improvement in their implementation. And, and there is a need to increase the coherence between nature protection and the socio-economic activities. And uh, the engagement with national authorities, uh, stakeholders, and citizens need, need to be improved. So this was the main conclusion of the fitness check. And the Commission pledged to produce an action plan to follow up these conclusions. And I am more than relieved that uh, yesterday the Commission adopted this action plan, because to be honest, I was keeping my fingers crossed that I would be able to speak about it tomorrow, <laughs> today, and because if it wasn't adopted yesterday, I couldn't have said anything about it, but it's published, it's online, and I'd like to point out uh, a few messages uh, to you from this action plan, which I believe will be of direct interest to you. Um, the action plan aims to f uh, fulfill the potential of the directives uh, for healthy ecosystems whose ser services benefit people, nature, and the economy. And uh, it is meant to, to, service, uh, to serve the EU biodiversity targets as well. And again, the emphasis is on the broader coherence between the socio-economic objectives of the EU and the, and the nature legislation. Um, there are 15 actions in this plan, and they are built around four priorities. The first one of them is to improve guidance and knowledge about uh, ensuring better uh, coherence. The second one is to build political ownership and to strengthen compliance. That's implementation again. The third one is a call for money to strengthen investment in Nature 2000 and in improving uh, synergies with the EU funding instruments. And finally, not least, it comes up everywhere on any topic you, you speak about. It's better communication and better outreach. And let me single out a few actions which should be of direct interest to the hunting community in Europe at least, and hopefully of interest to others as well. The first action is to update and develop uh, and promote guidance documents. There, there are guidance documents. Some of them have been in existence for quite a few years uh, on permitting, etc., on species protection. There's one which is very well known among the, the bird hunters in, in, in the EU, uh, which is a, a document on uh, reproductive periods uh, of, of huntable bird species in the EU. So these documents will be updated uh, and produced in all the EU languages this year and next year. Because the, the action plan actually has uh, actions only up to 2019. And the, the question you ask, why only for two years? And that's uh, not to preempt what will come up in the new financial period for the EU after 2020. And this is within the mandate of the current Commission, and the Commission is pledged to deliver on things that they can do under the mandate. They are not promising things that a future Commission can do. Um, Action 7 will talk, uh, talks about developing species and habitat action plans, and about stakeholder platforms. 
Um, again, we have been developing species action plans for quite a few species of birds, including huntable species of birds. Um, they are going to be uh, further developed, and we are going to move into a direction of, of multi-species action plans. There have been earlier single-species action plans, but now the idea is to consolidate some of them into species groups. And uh, this action will also call on uh, 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 further implementing the, the Memorandum of Understanding on the Conservation of Migratory Birds uh, um, and, and the Birds of Prey in, in, in Africa and Eurasia uh, under the Convention of uh, Migratory Species and to promote uh, dialogues uh, in the forms of platforms and fora uh, under the, the various international agreements, as well as in, in the EU on uh, species that have caused conflict with human society and human activities. And the EU Large Carnivore Platform uh, is one of them, uh, which was started in 2014, and uh, it now will receive boosting uh, from this action plan. And cormorants, another uh, uh, group of birds which are uh, uh, a source of conflict. And this morning we heard about geese. And yes, the action plan will also consider setting up uh, and assessing platforms on management of geese. Um, and uh, action 10 is on, uh, on cohesion policy. And here is something which is going to be a very specific hook to the urban agenda that I mentioned, because a number of partnerships uh, are being launched under the EU urban agenda. And this action calls on launching a call, a call meaning a call for financing projects under the urban innovative actions um, section. So there will be funding to uh, actually put in place uh, ideas and, uh, and to test methods which will be uh, produced uh, under the, the urban agenda. And as I say again, this call is being made in the action plan for nature. So our attempts to, to achieve coherence uh, are making first uh, steps. Um, I talked about uh, why the actions are planned only for two years. Um, in June, there will be a conference. Uh, it's a conference by invitation, and the invitations have gone, on, have gone out. To, to discuss uh, uh, how to put the action plan in place. And uh, so that was the, the fresh news uh, I mentioned to you. And finally, although this is about rural Europe, not urban Europe, but I would like you not to forget that uh, the, the loud thinking about the future common agriculture policy has begun. There was a conference in Cork in Ireland last year when they discussed the ideas about how to modernize the, Europe, the common agriculture policy. And uh, point five talks about managing natural resources. So this is uh, your place where you can uh, work to have a better countryside for wildlife management and for, uh, for managing game species. Um, a public consultation started earlier this year. I hope that everybody who is on board in Europe was aware of this and has contributed 
comments to this public consultation because unfortunately the deadline for closing is the 2nd of May, next Tuesday. So, but that's the public consultation phase and there is still a long way to go before the new cap uh, will take shape place. But that's again a place where your voice can be heard and I hope uh, you are going to make your voice heard. And finally, um, next year is going to be the European Year of Cultural Heritage. A decision was taken uh, in, in February. And uh, linked to one of the actions in the action plan uh, is to, to link up cultural heritage with natural heritage. I, I hope uh, that with, with all your uh, work on, uh, on wildlife conservation and wildlife management, and the, and the stewardship of the, the hunting cultural heritage, you will find uh, your place uh, in the activities uh, under the European Culture Year next year to further advance your objectives uh, in your organization. Thank you very much for your attention, and uh, I look forward to the discussions. Thank you. And probably the moment that you've been waiting for, next we'll be hearing from Shane Mahoney. I do encourage you, if this just touches you in a way that you can't quite explain why you're so taken back by the gravity of what he's saying, go and find him uh, online, go and uh, look up Conservation Visions on Google. And also, if you go into your podcast app, where you're probably listening to our podcast, and search uh, Conservation Visions, you will find, uh, it's not a regular podcast like this one, but it's more a collection of speeches that he's made uh, you know, over the last couple of years. And you'll be able to go through that and listen. And I will be very surprised if you can listen to that and not be inspired. So he will be talking about Hunter's funding, funding? Hunter's, Hunter's, oh my God. <laughs> Tongue twisted. Yeah. Hun Hunter's funding conservation, North America model waterfowling uh, conservation, uh, like Byron said. That was ridiculously tongue-twisting. I, I don't want to have to say it again, so it is a really good talk, this. You, you He's the king of the pause. If you listen yeah. to this and, and just get your mind around how he uh, gravitates the concentration of what you need to be thinking about, by the way that he structures his sentences and pauses, it's fantastic. Yeah, like Byron said, I Byron was there, I wasn't, so I've I've listened to the show, edited it, and you are just drawn in by him. And if you like what you hear here, we actually have another one of his talks, speeches, um, debates uh, on the next show. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Um. The North American continent has been uh, very fortunate in having some extraordinary successes over the last 100 to 150 years in terms of recovering and securing uh, a diverse array of wildlife populations, many of which, of course, as you well know, are hunted intensively uh, on that continent. It is a very much a hunting-oriented culture in both Canada and the United States. But of all the achievements that have uh, taken place there in this model known as the North American approach to conservation, none has been more exemplary than the efforts that have been made for the conservation and sustainable use of waterfowl. 
<clears throat> With uh, very few exceptions, uh, the populations of geese, ducks, and swans remain incredibly abundant in Canada and the United States, um, despite the fact, and we know this from the surveys that are conducted annually across the entire continent, if you can believe it, for these animals uh, that have been conducted annually since 1955. These birds, however, during the long period of time that we have been examining them, fascinated by them, and managing them to some extent, have been pursued by millions of hunters annually for over two centuries. Yet of all the major bird groups, as I mentioned, uh, this particular group of animals is faring as well as any group of birds that we can point to and better than many other constellations of species. It is one of the best, most the premier world examples of how the sustainable use of wildlife can be maintained over a long arc of time to the betterment of the resource and to people at large. In recent years, even in 2014-15, more than 1.25 million people hunted waterfowl in the United States and Canada. And the economic engine associated with hunting in both Canada and the United States is enormous, as most people realize. <clears throat> but when you look at the statistic of $3.5 billion in economic output in a single year in pursuit of a single class of animals from a hunting perspective uh, and recognize that the harvest was of 16 million animals, it gives you some idea of the scale at which the sustainable use of wildlife is able to operate. It is very important to recognize that it has, throughout the long period of time that these species have been managed, the interest of hunters in waterfowl conservation that has not alone, this is a constant mistake we make as hunting organizations to give credit only to ourselves, not alone, there have been other influences, but hunting has been a critically important one in driving the research and management of waterfowl populations. And the North state of North American waterfowl has not always been as healthy as it is today. And that certainly required that we had spokespersons and individuals, people, concerned for their fate that would do things that would enhance their conservation. This led to the Migratory Bird and Convention Act, uh, which was originally signed in 1916 between the United States and the United Kingdom. This led to the Migratory Bird, or the treaty, which led to the Migratory Bird and Convention Act, which gave the federal governments in both countries the responsibilities for the management of waterfowl, where we protect them at a very intense level. Uh, many provisions are there for the sanctuaries of migratory birds, and this led to the signatures of other treaties. There was a massive decline in the 1930s, which led people to move very aggressively to protect these animals, created the duck stamp, and a variety of NGOs, many of which will be known to you, such as Ducks Unlimited, etc., and the creation of cooperative wildlife research institutions. These funding mechanisms have raised billions of dollars for waterfowl research, and even in Canada, the duck stamp has raised $50 million for them. We now have a new waterfowl management plan in Canada and the United States, which is a, 
a very locally delivered kind of effort across the entire spectrum of the two countries, which is a, uh, a partnership that involves every region uh, of the continent for the nesting and production of waterfowl, and which involves uh, partnerships between governments and NGOs and private citizens. This is really something quite exemplary because it brings the responsibility for waterfowl management down to the level of the community, which is extremely important and is not just left to government. We have a tremendous amount of science and research associated with the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. This has been a narrative that has gone from the early part of the 20th century on into now the 21st. If you can believe it, uh, in every region of Canada and the United States, every single year, there are surveys of these wildlife populations, these waterfowl populations, conducted by the federal government of Canada and the United States, year after year after year. And the private uh, habitat management has also been incredibly important. Ducks Unlimited, one of the organizations alone, a citizen organization that was founded to help fund uh, waterfowl science and to protect habitat, has generated more than 4.5 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars in investment directly from non-governmental sources and has invested over 84% of that money directly into waterfowl management in Canada and the United States over the last century. $4.8 billion. That has led to the rescue and improvement of nearly 14 million acres of wetland in both countries. So what we see uh, with the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and the entire effort for waterfowl conservation in Canada and the United States is one of the very earliest examples of multinational agreements that were designed to protect migratory species that required, of course, assistance from both the places where the birds bred and the places where the birds overwintered, and only through a coordinated effort could we, of course, keep these magnificent populations of animals with us over the long period of time. It is true that governments have played an important role in the conservation of North American uh, waterfowl. In our model, of course, governments are responsible for the public trust, for holding these populations in trust for the people. But this truly, in the case of waterfowl in North America, is an example of how it is possible to mobilize across vast areas the passion that hunters and non-hunters have for wildlife to build funding mechanisms, research institutions, and policy plans, objectives, and institutions that work effectively and have been tested for more than 100 years. However, I do not leave you with the message that everything is fine. The world is challenged by the issues of hunting and by many, many social changes that are taking place. The values we hold today are different than we used to, and whether or not in North America we can continue to build the broad base of coalition in support of waterfowl populations and this extraordinarily expensive system of conservation remains to be seen. We face ecological challenges such as climate change, which have the capacity to have severe impacts 
upon the breeding grounds in particular, the big pothole regions, so-called, of Canada and the subarctic and arctic regions of Canada, which form the basis for the production of these uh, animal populations. These are changes that are not unlike some of the changes that we faced in the 1920s, the 1930s, and at other times in our history. So we may draw from our success a fair measure of hope that we will be able to meet these challenges into the future. But if anyone in this audience is ever seeking an example by which to demonstrate that the sustainable use of animals, of wildlife, is capable, possible, able to drive a system of conservation for a broad suite of species that are not only resident but migrate across a massive continent, I really believe that the North American waterfowl management success is one you can feel very confident in referencing. Thank you very much. The next speaker is an expert in migratory birds and particularly geese. His name is uh, Evensky and his surname, I'm afraid I'm not even going to try and pronounce because it's very, very long and very, very Russian, so I'm just going <laughs> to screw it up. Uh, but he's a, also a very, like all the rest of our guests, an incredibly knowledgeable person. Yep, he covers geese populations, cooperation with hunters. Uh, I'm, well, you, you, you'll understand what he talks about that with. It's to do with counting and, and figuring out where they're going. Uh, hunters keeping healthy populations, migration of birds, uh, looking after birds at both ends, which I think is particularly interesting and should be brought across not just the, the species of geese. Uh, you can take it to woodcock and many other migratory uh, species that it should be looked after both ends. There's no point uh, you imposing a hunting ban in, in your country and you don't look at where the bird ends up or has come from and anything could happen there. And he talks about the effects of this in this uh, short speech and it's actually fascinating to find out what's been going on with geese. I was asked today to uh, give a presentation about geese population dynamics and the challenges and opportunities uh, for hunters, the view from Russia, which was not that difficult for me because geese were the favorite subject of my uh, studies for many, many years and I'm still uh, serving as a chair for the Russian group on geese, ducks and swans. And before I started my presentation, I decided to ask you a question. Uh, which is the wildlife resource is fastest rising in Europe in 21st century? Well, the answer is quite obvious. <laughs> uh, but that's a quite an exceptional thing. And we have just heard the story of North America, uh, which is the best example of management of waterfall resources anywhere on the planet, uh, they had been working a lot for many, many years to have their populations on high level and to be able to hunt them in those numbers. They can do it now. Uh, but even there, they have some challenges with overabundant geese. And, um, but before I come to this subject, how do we manage overabundant geese, I will explain a little bit about what I'm going to talk about now. Uh, I will going to present you some facts and figures from the report of the 
Working Group of the Arctic Council, Conservation Arctic, Arctic Flora and Fauna, uh, CAF, the Working Group, uh, which, had the, which had prepared an overview, they name it, we name it Audit of the World Goose Populations. And though it's still not yet published, I got a permission from both CAF and the editor, Tony Fox, uh, to present it because it's a, very important to share this information with you, which is giving some examples, illustrations about what's really happening with geese in, uh, in Western Palearctic. So in this report, which will be available later during this year, which is already with the, with the printer, uh, the estimate for the northern hemisphere true geese populations was made, uh, where we have uh, roughly 38 million of geese, which belongs to 68 populations of 15 species. And this is giving you a very rough idea about how these uh, populations are distributed in size. And the white color is the Western Palearctic, Western Europe and Russia. And you can see that this is well-centered, representing uh, populations of medium and rather high size, from 10,000 to a million birds. And these are the general picture of trends, which is going to be presented in this report. And again, uh, you can see that white color European populations are mainly increasing. Opposite to that, Asian populations are decreasing a lot. And this, what I was speaking in a number of previous General Assemblies of uh, CAC about conservation issues with uh, geese in Asia. It's a very interesting subject on its own, but we're not going to speak about it today. <clears throat> and today we're going to speak about geese in Europe. And oppositely to over, uh, most other groups of birds, and I didn't have the overall European uh, trends handy, but on this picture you can see uh, trends for the United Kingdom for different ec ecological groups of birds, uh, uh, overview made by RSPB, and they are all going down, 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 down. And on the right hand, you can see geese, which are going up. And the red dots are the prediction. It's not necessarily to go into develop like that, but it's a very possible, very likely scenario that geese will be continuing to grow and it's not only the results of uh, some simple calculations here in Europe, but it's also following the North American example. The geese were doing the same as, as, as far as they start rising. It might be not easy to stop them. Few illustrations uh, about those geese which are game species, which are common, and which are mainly breeding in Russia. So this is a great white-fronted goose which you all know very well. The species is already over a million population and going up. An interesting fact about white-fronted geese, actually, and that's true for many other goose populations, that actually the breeding uh, success, the percentage of juveniles in the population is going down. Uh, that might be an interesting subject to discuss and it means there are some probably density-dependent uh, issues in these populations, but even with all this, population of greater white-fronted goose still continue increasing. Another common game species is 
tundra bean goose. I'm not speaking about here about tiger bean goose, which is the uh, declining and needs some serious protection, international cooperation in this field. But tundra bean goose, common game species in Russia and also in many Western European countries, is increasing. There are, though, some uh, speculations that probably this increase is only compensation of a very long uh, decline which is happening in Europe in the last over 150 years. And there's a publication by Johann Moy from Germany. Well, all the figures on the left of this graph are his modeling, his uh, uh, reconstructions. Uh, so we probably are in a situation when those populations which are increasing a lot in Europe of geese are actually catching up. They're returning to the original size of populations where they have been before. And barnacle goose, the absolute champion of, uh, of the increases, there's several populations all, go, all going up, but the one on the top right, it's the Russian barnacle goose, which is over a million already. And I remember when I was a student and was start studying geese and was particularly excited about barnacle geese. It was a rare species. It was probably 20, 30,000 only breeding in some remote parts of the Russian Arctic. And now we're speaking about uh, over, over a million of these birds. <clears throat> in general, rising goose populations, it looks like a very good news for both hunters and non-hunters. Increasing opportunities for everybody, a recovery of important biodiversity component, and good resource for sustainable use. Enjoy bird watchers and other nature lovers, those who have been uh, meeting here yesterday for the very productive discussion about how we can work together for conservation. Um, and I think it's a, something to celebrate for different sectors of society, including hunters, because it is achievement of hunters in Europe who have been uh, listening to conservation arguments and for decades seriously limiting the ability to shoot geese in the non-breeding grounds of Western Palearctic Range. Uh, and now we're getting some very good results. Lots of geese. Uh, opportunities, but also challenges. When you look at Barnacle Goose Range, uh, this is the natural original range in the Arctic breeding grounds. But what starts happening rather soon, geese are very adaptive. And they start breeding in the Netherlands, where the numbers are reaching already over 60,000 birds, maybe even more now. Uh, Sweden, Finland, many other places. Uh, all these red dots in the lower part of the map are places where barnacle Arctic, former Arctic breeding goose is breeding now. And it means uh, lots of issues, agriculture conflicts, but not only. There are some collisions with air, airplanes. And this is a famous, famous picture of the airplane in North America, which hit, was hit by snow goose. And, well, you can see what had happened. Uh, even influenza issues, um, some habitat changes, um, changes in the chemical components of the uh, water, and even changes of tundra vegetation and salt marsh vegetation. <clears throat> it's also using urban grasslands. <clears throat> this gentleman is clearly in challenging situation, what to do with his uh, sport here. 
And in the Arctic, we are getting the first signs of impact of tundra vegetation. This is a slide from Jesper Matzen's team, which is working with the uh, pink-footed goose in Svalbard. <coughs> and it all costs money. Uh, to mitigate all these issues, a lot of money should be uh, are spending, uh, are spent in the moment. So in, in the Netherlands, which is the most obvious and clear uh, example of this, uh, there are millions and millions and millions of euro with the increasing uh, trend which has spent uh, for uh, agriculture damage mitigation. And there are lots of questions. Why is this happening? And are there any other solutions? Uh, why so much public money are spent for such management of such common species? <clears throat> and for me, the solution is quite simple and obvious. Why not, not to use hunting as a management tool to regulate numbers of geese in Europe and help sorting out all these problems? And I specially titled my presentation A View from Russia, because probably some of my suggestions are naive and not so easy to follow, but this is what is coming as the first thing in mind. Uh, well, if you have too many geese, well, there are enough hunters in Europe who can help to, to, to regulate that. And of course, there are issues of over-concentration uh, due to, well, that's a long, long story to tell why that had happened, but now uh, geese are in huge numbers concentrated in a uh, number of countries, including Netherlands, first of all. <clears throat> Uh, but there should be solutions, and the Goose Platform, Alexander is going to speak about Goose Platform activities of African Eurasian Waterboat Agreement with lots of partners. Uh, they are trying to find this solution. And again, maybe it's a naive question, but could be a hunting tourist coming to shoot geese in the fields of the Netherlands be a solution for the farmer in the Netherlands? Uh, a bit difficult to evalu evaluate again, but there is one thing uh, which, for me, personal, uh, morally, sounds very unacceptable. And this is the stories which I still can hardly believe, but it's really happening, that the geese are killed in big numbers by gas in, in, in the Netherlands. Uh, those are not migratory populations, as they are saying, because if it will be migratory populations, they will be subject for some international discussions. This is a local sedentary population, but still, there are some... Strange parallels coming in mind when you start killing geese with gas uh, instead of uh, using other possible opportunities, which are obviously hunting <clears throat> for me. And there are some very good progress. There are some very good positive examples uh, about the adaptive management of migratory goose uh, populations in Europe. And you can see here the management plan, which is actually already working for pink-footed goose in northern Europe. Several countries cooperating along the flyway, uh, Denmark, Norway, Germany, uh, and they have developed quite an efficient scheme. Again, if it will be somebody here from, from the team, they can tell it all in, the, in, in details. And cooperation with hunters there is a very, very central part. Excellent instrument. Uh, they are setting a population tar target where they have a lower limit uh, which is a safety net for, for the population. It shouldn't be going down lower than that. And then there's the upper limit, uh, which is supposed to reduce, uh, uh, allow to regulate uh, agriculture damage and tundra changes. And there are 
first of all, the instrument are hunters uh, on, the, on the migration routes which are uh, helping to keep it under control. So this for me, well, for, for, for Sean, probably it's a very common thing. Well, these things are happening in America for decades and decades. <laughs> But uh, for, for us in Western Palearctic, and I remember myself talking about this, the need of this start happening for decades, for at least 20 years in different international forum, uh, for, uh, uh, that we need to have similar uh, scheme in Europe. And here we are. So uh, congratulations and applause to colleagues in Denmark, Norway, and the other countries who managed to, to get this uh, working. Hopefully, other geese populations and then ducks and then waders, they all could have similar uh, cooperative approach in management of populations where everybody will be working together, but hunters will play a very important role. Uh, and uh, all this uh, situation is bringing a new dimension in the discussion about spring hunting. Uh, well, in Russia, spring hunting is still going on. It was criticized for many, many years because uh, theoretically, biologically, it's not a very efficient way of using your resources. You definitely uh, may have more geese or ducks uh, to shoot in autumn if you're not shooting them in spring. But uh, as you can see with number of geese like white fronts and barnacles, in spite of the fact of spring hunting in Russia, they're actually still increasing. And in North America, again, uh, they try to regulate uh, snow geese with spring hunting. And in some cases, it's worked quite well. But in some cases, it's in, they can hardly stop them with the opening hunting <laughs> nearly year-round. Uh, so um, in a way, now, um, we can say that spring hunting in Russia may help to slow down several selected geese population in Western Europe to grow. And this is one of the aims of the Goose Platform as we are discussing it uh, now. And also it's uh, bringing, again, maybe it's a bit naive question for me because I don't know, from me, because I don't know the situation in EU legislation well enough, uh, but could be reopen of spring hunting an efficient tool to control the numbers of some geese populations, particularly like barnacle geese. Honestly, I don't, being a biologist, I don't see any other easy solutions I'm not speaking about gassing as a solution at all. I don't think it's, it's, it's a very wrong direction. But, well, that's, that's what is logically coming in mind, and we can discuss all this, yeah. And um, Russia potentially could, can, play, can play a very important role in cooperation on all these things. Uh, unfortunately, for the moment, there is no really uh, any mechanism of how we can work together on the governmental level and even on the level of uh, research institutions, NGOs, or hunting uh, communities, there's very, very little, very little, little co cooperation going in between Western Europe and Russia. The legal binding instrument for that could be African-Eurasian Water Bird Agreement. <clears throat> and as you can see on this map, the big red question mark, Russia is not a member of IEVA still. It's a long story to, to tell why, uh, but I hope that on some stage CAC, which have very well connect, connected uh, both in Western Europe and in Russia, could help uh, Russian government make some deci positive decisions about becoming a Naeva signatory. And thank you very much for, this attention, for your attention. Thank you. <clears throat>
The last person that you're going to be hearing from is Jeremy Hans. He is a writer for the Guardian newspaper in the UK, although he actually lives and is based in the States. He was sitting on a um, an, on a panel of 20, 25 or so people, which uh, included myself and a couple of other hunters in Europe who, who I knew, discussing how we can help promote uh, hunting in a more positive light to the mainstream media. Uh, and people like, like him were, were there who didn't have any sort of hunting incentive just to help inform debate and probably temper it in a way to remove the sort of hunting bias that we had. And I actually got on incredibly well with him. I spoke to him quite a bit after and he has sort of a very level-headed view uh, on how we need to be tackling certain issues. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a, this is a good run-on to what we uh, will be bringing you on when we come show. to the, the next show. Yeah. yeah, and he quotes Byron twice as well in it, which is, uh, well, there you go, Byron. You're being quoted now. Uh, yeah, Byron said uh, hunting perception. That's basically what he's talking about on a very level playing ground of not a hunter, not against hunting, just kind of... Seeing it for what yeah, it is, seeing or it trying for, for to see what it, for it, is. what it is, and kind of giving, I guess, giving the pres- giving the picture of why people might think certain things. Yeah, which is important. Yeah, and uh, that was that was certainly one of the major takeaways uh, from the the day of conversations that we had around the table, tackling different uh, topics and different questions. Was that the thing that we need to tackle as hunters? is the perception of what we do. All right, uh, thanks. Um, so just to, re- I, I guess I should probably remind people who I am because there's a lot of faces and names to keep straight. Uh, I'm Jeremy Hans, freelance uh, journalist from the US, uh, and I'm not a hunter, um, but I'm not anti-hunting. I am uh, more here to, I think, listen and learn. Um, I'm not gonna talk too much about the US communication because I actually, I cover wildlife issues from around the world and I'm actually, I cover tend to cover other countries way more than I do the U.S. I guess what I'm struck by today is, is uh, first of all, there's a lot of great passion in this room, and I can tell a lot of people uh, here love hunting for a variety of reasons. Um, and I also really, I, I really, for someone who has to deal with a lot of uh, different cultural camps and uh, a lot of polarization when I write about environmental issues, uh, it's really nice to hear some humility uh, to hear some candidness about there, there being good hunting and bad hunting and there being uh, programs that work and programs that don't work as well. Um, I, I really I appreciate that. I think, at least from my perspective as someone who writes about conservation but not particularly about hunting, um, hunters are working against some pretty major trends. One, of course, is urbanization. We have over 50% of the population in the world today and the first time in history lives in cities. Most of these people don't have contact with uh, conservation, nature, and I mean, I think the vast majority are not hunters. I think one thing that hasn't been talked about at all is also we're dealing with a, although uh, Mr. Pace did kind of, I think, allude to this in his wonderful remarks, is we're dealing with a changing view of wildlife, a changing view of animals. Um, We are looking at a very different way of people relate to animals and how people uh, view uh, species. And some of this is anthropomorphism, but some of it also is based on really good, clear signs that we are learning that uh, the world's animals are actually far smarter, far more emotionally complex, uh, far maybe deeper is, is a good word, beings than we used to. And this is based on very good science. So I think there's, there is clearly in the last 50 to 100 years, we see wildlife as very differently 
than the past. And I think most of the population uh, views wildlife very differently than it would have, say, 100 years ago. And another part of that is that we are losing, and again, I know there's some examples here of, of where there are wildlife success stories in various countries, but at least in the parts of the world that I write about, South America, Africa, Asia, we're losing wildlife at, at stunning, catastrophic rates. Um, and so I think there's that sense of loss that people feel. And so I guess for me, uh, kind of moving forward, is I need to see, in order to be convinced that, that a certain hunting program is beneficial wild, for wildlife, I need to see the strong science behind that. And I need to see independent science. In other words, it can't be a hunting group saying, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It has to be independent scientists who are going in there, who are doing surveys, who are doing this. I've talked to hundreds of conservationists and scientists throughout my career, and I've heard a hundred different answers to that question. And that's part of the issue. A lot of people here are saying that the science is clearly on the hunter's side, and that may be the case, but I hear from different conservationists different answers to this. And I hear from some conservationists who are very much against certain types of hunting of certain species. Um, I think another thing, I'm going to agree with Mr. Pace on this, is that one of the most damaging things that has happened with the hunting community is those photos, right, of people standing over the, the dead animal and, you know, uh, with, a, with a big, broad smile on their face. And that's sort of what, what that denotes to non-hunters is a kind of lack of respect, a lack of value to this animal that, you know, has been hunted. Um, I mean, I see that, I, I have a lot of people that I'm, you know, connected to on, on, on social media and such, and many of them are animal rights activists. And believe me, they like to post those photos. Um, and because they're very emotional and they're very powerful and they what they show is a certain sense of arrogance right that that's how they view it I know that many people in this room may not view it that way, but that's what how they're viewing that and so I think that One of the ways people here need to think is how do you change? How hunters are talking and I've heard many of you say this today, which I really appreciate how how what the hunting experience is actually like how Hunters view that experience why it matters to them, etc, etc um I would also say, lastly, I'll keep this as brief as possible, but I, I think one of the important things is also to pick your battles. Um, the world is changing. We're losing wildlife. There's a reason why we can't hunt, well, or maybe not why we can't, but why we don't hunt tigers anymore. There's only 3,000 left. I imagine in a couple decades, no matter what we do here today, the same situation is going to happen with lions. Uh, you can't hunt jaguars anymore. There, there are certain species that it's becoming harder, and it's not hunter's fault. It's, it's all these other, you know, things that are driving this. It's the total human population. It's the various policies. It's the loss of habitat. It's all these other things that are driving this massive, what I would call, simplification of our biodiversity. Um, and so hunters may want to think about how they not only communicate, but what battles are the most important to, to pick, um, and which battles can be won, and which <laughs> I see your face, Rob. Which might not have to, may, which, which of these battles maybe have to be given up on eventually? One of the things that I loved, someone said, maybe, uh, I don't remember, but basically that uh, we should not, uh, this is actually Mr. Pace again, I'm going to keep quoting you. I wrote this down. We should be bold enough to not, we should be bold enough to not push hunting into every corner. And I think that's another thing that people outside of hunters believe. The sense is that a hunter will shoot any animal anywhere at any time. Now, I can see from many of you that that's probably not true, but that is the, that's the communication that people are getting, the sense that, the, the, so I think what you have to do is you have to push the science, you have to explain how this is working for conservation, and you have to do it with independent science. You have to convince me, because I'm, I, I, I'm mostly a science journalist, so you have to convince me through peer review that that's the way that that's working.
Well, that was a fun and interesting, educating show, fun-packed show. It was probably the most varied show I think we've ever yeah, brought you. Yeah, a huge amount of guests. I'm sorry I got tongue-tied. I almost did it again there. <laughs> tongue-tied halfway through. Also, apologies for the varying audio qualities we recorded. Mm, I'm not, very small I don't really. know if we actually recorded any of that. Maybe one of the things we recorded ourselves in there. On the next show, we actually recorded a lot more ourselves with our own audio recording equipment. Um, but you just have to take it. Yeah, for, just take, t- it, take it, it for what it is. We've we've delivered. We we flew over there and uh, we recorded as much as we can because there were so many speeches going on. And also, uh, we have a few recordings. So another language. If if you ha- if we have any French podcast listeners out there, I don't think we have many at all. Uh, you're more than welcome to have the files. If if I, if there is any French listeners out there. I will send you the files because there's a large amount in French. Mm. (laughs) What you don't realize is that a lot of these conversations that are taking place that you're listening to is in a room with 100, 200 people sitting there all listening to these conversations on stage. So that's why you get a bit of a background noise. And And it's been translated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was the really cool thing was that they were behind me where I was sitting right at the back the day that I left. At the back of the conference hall, there was probably 10 to 12 booths, all with people sat in them, translating what was being said on stage into their respective languages. And in the audience, every sort of second or third person would have a headset on listening to what was being said in their languages. So it was uh, quite a sort of logistics nightmare to, to organise it. I don't quite know how they did it, but it, but it worked. There was a lot of people there listening to what was being said. But that kind of shows you the challenge that we have because you could have the biggest champion on the planet, but they might speak French or German or something like that. And they could be so amazing at speaking, but when it's translated, it might not be... Might lose something. Might yeah. lose something. Uh, so I guess that's another challenge that the the hunting... That, well, especially what shooting, we face in fishing Europe. ...fishing community yeah. faces is the cross-language barrier. I mean, a large amount of people do speak English, which does help. Mm. But uh, no, you're right. They don't have that issue in the States. No, of course not. Yeah. Uh, which uh, Shane kind of touches on how they've worked very closely together in Canada and the United States to get to where they are in, well, the state they are in the the duck, wild fowling kind of uh, yeah, community. It's, what what they've achieved in the states, which he touches on, is quite quite remarkable, and it's something we're definitely going to be talking about again in the future across the spectrum of species which they've sort of brought back from extinction. Yep. Right, so I think we're almost done for... I think we are. I think we are. So, so Next for us is the Game Fair. Yeah, next for us is the Game Fair. As usual, we haven't asked you guys for a wee while. If you have any topics you want covered on the show, any p- specific people you would like on, please email us, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, head over to the Facebook or Instagram. Uh, you can message us on there as well. And we'll try and get them on. We've pretty much had a 100% success rate to everyone that has people have asked us to come on and we have yeah so uh yeah and we got some guests coming up actually quite soon who uh, have been requested so it works it does work and i was going to say something else if you need any more information head to all the w's thepacebrothers.com everything is there so it, all of the apps you can download the show on is on there all the links blog posts everything you can think of and we've had over the last month actually we've had two people email us asking for the podcast to be on 
specific apps that they might use. Uh, and we've put them on the apps. Oh, you've done them both? I think so. Good job. Yeah. I didn't uh, actually realise that. Yeah, I think, what was it? Oh, Podcast Addict. I think Podbean, was it? Pod, no, we were on Podbean. Oh, Acast. That Acast. was the one. I can't keep up with all these, these apps. We're generally on most of them. Uh, so if, if you have a problem listening to the show, let us know. And uh, I will actually mention this at the start of the next podcast because I should have mentioned it at the start. We have one space left now for our Wilderness Hunt in January. Oh. So there is one place left. Don't be left out. <laughs> Don't be left out. Uh, if you want to know more about that, head to the website, thepacebrothers.com. Join us again in two weeks' time where I think we'll have another CIC or we might We, we might intersperse it. We, we might, might, we might do it. one of the, the interviews from the Game Fair. We'll uh, speak to you in two weeks. Bye.